Okay, today is, y'all hear me? Okay, today is uh, December numero uno, number one, last month of the year. Uh, we will not have Bible class next Tuesday. Huh? No. I said it's the last month, last, last page that I tore off here. Um, we will not have Bible class next Tuesday, and there will be no young people's class Wednesday. I'm going to be in a conference, so um, that is... Oh, and we're going to finish decorating the church after uh, Bible class tonight, so if you would like to and are able, we would appreciate anybody that can stay. Let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion, moment of silent prayer, rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your word, and for the ability to understand it because of the grace system of perception. We thank you that you have revealed these things to us, and it strikes deep into our soul so that we can have confidence and courage, that we can execute the Christian way of life for the royal family during this church age. We pray that you will help us to focus, to keep an open mind, and help us to concentrate. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are in the middle of the most, possibly the most controversial book in the Bible. And we are going into the probably the two most controversial verses and the most controversial chapter and the most controversial book. There's one thing I want to make sure, I want to really stress this before we go any further. You can understand James chapter 2. You can do it. And I have put so much thought into this. I have a headache from putting this all together and trying to make it as practical and understandable as I possibly can. Of course, it doesn't depend upon my efforts I understand that that's part of the mix, but it's the Holy Spirit that will enlighten you and help you to understand these things. So, so many people have misunderstood this. A lot of believers wish that James had never written this epistle to begin with. I was among, among them at one time before I understood. I thought, why did James have to come in and muddy the water and give the enemy a leg up? That they can go here and just say, Six words and undo a whole doctrine, a true doctrine, faith alone in Christ alone. I want you to think about those words consistently and continually as you go through the book of James. Because what James is addressing has nothing to do with eternal salvation. That is a true, a truism, I guess you could say, that never changes throughout the whole course of the Bible. It is the foundational truth of the gospel. Faith alone in Christ alone. That is what we put our faith in. That's what the Bible says. 
when James comes along and it appears on the surface that uh, we have a problem, what it does is help us sharpen our spiritual prowess so that we are able to better handle His Word. And when you are able to do that, let me tell you, (laughs) there are very few Christians that can handle James chapter 2. And that's why they are so vulnerable to all the cults and so many that come in and just by mentioning a few phrases think that they have undone the mighty Word of God and its grace. And so this is imperative that you focus. If you focus, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you will understand James chapter 2. And not only will you understand it, it will be a great source of encouragement and confidence and courage on your part. But that said, we're going to launch into it. We find ourselves in James chapter 2, verse 15 through 17 we've already covered. There's one thing I want to say about that, though, before we completely leave it. Because it's verses 18 and 19 of James chapter 2 that people want to just throw their hands up and say, forget it. We're not going to forget it. We're going to remember it. We're going to... We're going to this is going to be our clarion call. We're going to relish when someone says, well, what about faith without works is dead? We're going to say, I'm so glad you mentioned that. And you might not believe it, but once you understand James, you'll know what I'm talking about. James chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. In your Bibles, I want you to make this note. Somewhere in the margin. Wherever you have room. Dead faith is not false faith. You see, that's what everybody is trying to claim. It's useless faith. Dead faith is not false faith. It's useless faith. And there's a difference. In verse 17, when it says, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. What people try to do is twist that dead faith into meaning that you have a false faith. And here's here's what they mean by that. If you have a faith in Jesus Christ at salvation, but you don't have works to accompany that faith, then what you had was a false faith. It wasn't truly a saving faith. For if you had true saving faith, then the works would be automatically forthcoming. You see why it's not a false faith? It's a useless faith. We've actually gone back a little bit. I didn't didn't give that to you before. 
but I'm giving it to you now so that <coughs> it will help you along. Okay, I'm going to put the notes up here. There's another group we will cover later that believe a person who believes in Jesus Christ but does not produce good works was never saved to begin with. That w that's what we were just discussing. They think the whole thing about James and having a, a, a dead faith is that it wasn't... Uh, well, sometimes they will say it was a head belief and not a heart belief. It, it just wasn't strong enough. Or sometimes they will say uh, it was a faith, but it wasn't strong enough. It wasn't the right kind of faith. All these kind of things they bring up, the Bible never makes distinctions about that. It doesn't matter how strong your faith is at salvation when you, get, when you hear the gospel. It's not the quality of your faith or the quantity of faith. It's always the object of your faith. The smallest amount of faith, the size of a mustard seed, directed towards Jesus Christ, saves. Period. So don't ever fall for the idea that if someone claims to be a Christian but they're living like an unbeliever, that they really weren't saved. Their, their faith in Jesus Christ wasn't genuine because they don't have the works to prove that it was genuine. That all is crapola. And that's the nicest thing I can say about it. They claim that they had a faulty faith because true faith will automatically produce good works, and that is a lie. It is true why we weren't... Uh, <coughs> it is true... Excuse me. If that is true, why weren't the writers of Scripture concerned about the salvation of those who had believed in Christ but were, were not producing good works? For instance, the Corinthians. There's not anything that you can say about the Corinthians uh, that as far as being off the charts into carnality, they, they, were every, they had legalism, they had uh, licentiousness, they had jealousy, Every, thing, every mental attitude sin and probably just about every uh, overt sin they were guilty of. But right off the bat in the first chapter, in the first couple of verses, Paul says that he is writing to those who have been sanctified. These are believers. Paul never brings their eternal salvation into question. Nor did he when he was writing the Galatians. Galatians was one of the earlier books that were written, and boy, it's one of the most scathing. You stupid Galatians! I can't believe you! You start out being spiritual, depending on the Spirit, and now you're going to the flesh? I mean, he, he excoriated them, and yet their eternal salvation was never questioned. Something to think about. James chapter 2.8. This is where the fun starts. Are you all ready for the fun? Okay. Now, James is going to bring up an objection that he anticipated from those he was straightening out. 
very smart to do that. Instead of waiting for them to reply, to rebut what he's saying, he's going to say for them what they would say if he gave them a chance. Sometimes this technique is called a straw man. James is saying essentially like, here's a straw man right here, and he's going to speak. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to speak through the straw man, but he's going to say what you would say if you had the chance. That's what a straw man does. And it's important to note that this straw man, this, this one that is objector, is going to speak from the beginning here at verse 18 all the way through verse 19. That's important to note because some translations, the King James Version, as some may, may, may well say, you have faith and I have works, and that's in quotations as if that's the only objection and the rest of it James is saying. But if you have a King James Version, you can look at that and check it out. But quotation marks that were put there were not in the original. That's just where someone have, has injected those. So the objection, when Paul is speaking, excuse me, James is speaking through this straw man, it's completely everything in verse 18 and 19. When he's through with verse 19... Then he goes back into his own mode. James is speaking for himself. One way you can tell that is that the syntax, the grammar, goes from singular back to plural. During the objector, when he's speaking, it's in the singular, but when he goes back to speaking to everyone, it's in the plural. I think I, I'm just passing through some of the things that we had last time. Now, here's the important. Nothing the objector says has anything to do with being eternally saved through faith in Christ. Major point. If you ever veer from that, you'll get off course and you'll be shipwrecked. In fact, the whole book of James is only one or two verses that in an oblique way refer to eternal salvation. Everything else is, has to do with the experiential realm. This is... This is key that you continue to understand that. And here's a quote from the Journal of the Grace Evangelical Society, Volume 8. It says the following. In modern terms, the, Im the imaginary objector, imaginary because it's not a true person, it's just someone that is an imaginary one that James is setting up, might have said, James, you start with a doctrinal point. And you show me what good works prove. You show me what good works proves you believe this. In other words, he's saying, he's starting with, the, this is the objector. This is, he's making his case. He's going to start with a point of doctrine. And he says, now, you, what you need to do is prove that by your good works that you believe this point of doctrine. That's the challenge. I never did read the verse, did I? Let me go back. I think it would be a good idea to read the verse. Did I, did I read it already? I haven't had it. Okay, let, let's, let's read the verse. Um, but someone, someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, when you first hear that, it just gives you a headache. I mean, you just think, man, what is he trying to say? This makes, makes no sense whatsoever. But listen, listen to this. If you, if you put it this way, and this is what he was trying to say. 
the seed of objector that someone may well say, one of you people out there who are offended. He was straightening out these believers. And what do believers or anyone else do? What's the first thing they want to do when you start straightening them out? They want to make an excuse, don't they? They object to what you say. They're going to try to make an excuse. So he's making the excuse for them. That's what he's doing. Now, if you look at it, he says, you have faith and I have works. If you look at it this way, if you, if you word it this way, it's a little bit better understanding. Since you have faith, if you can show me your faith by your works, if you can do that, what happens? Okay. What? Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's, it, yeah, it, but someone may, uh, may well say, it doesn't mean that what they say is good. It means that someone may very well say, in other words, it's, it's probable that it's going to happen. You have faith and I have works. See, he, what, what this person is trying to do is try to demonstrate that there is no connection between faith and works. Now, when I say that, what have you, do you have to remember? Faith alone in Christ alone, this is not about salvation. That's what they're trying to do because if they can break that connection between faith and works in the experiential realm, then they can rebut James's accusations. That's what they're trying to do. So what this uh, imaginary straw man is saying, if you can show me your faith by your works, then I'm going to be able to do something. But first of all, look at that. Let me ask you a question. Can a person show their faith by their works? So what he's presenting is something that uh, is impossible. Now, if it's impossible for you to show me your faith by your works, he says, if you can do that and you can't, see, that's what he's setting up, then he's saying, I will... Uh, then I will show you my faith by my works. And what he's saying, if you can't do that, I can't do this either. If you cannot show your faith by your works, then I can't show you my faith by my works. What he's saying is that this whole idea about connecting faith and works doesn't wash because both things are impossible. So if I can't show you my faith by my works, why are you getting down on me because I don't have works? Are you alleging that I don't have faith? That's not even the issue. But he's trying to make this disconnect. Do you have a question? Well, is that a, well, essentially, they're trying to make an excuse for not working. But you could put it on the other side of the coin and say, why work? It's not going to demonstrate my faith. Now, I know you're still struggling with this. I want to just throw that at you. Then I'm going to elaborate to make it clearer. <clears throat> James anticipated objection that somebody would make, so he's trying to take care of that beforehand. 
I went through all this already. Uh, now, nothing the ejector says has anything to do with being eternal. Is that what happened? Did that fall down a while ago? Didn't I just read this a while ago? Okay. In modern terms, the imagery, uh, excuse me, the imaginary objector might have said, James, you start with a doctrinal point and show me what good works proves you have, you believe this. If you can do that, if you can prove, excuse me, that you believe a certain thing by your works, if you can do that, I'll do the reverse. I'll name a good work and show what doctrine must be behind it. And the point is, it's impossible. You can't do that. For example, James, you believe that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you have a monogamous marriage. But the Mormons believe that too. And some of them are polygamous. So works can't show us anything about a person's faith. No one can see faith. Does that communicate? That's, that's pretty much what he's saying. Now, here's a critical distinction, critical that you understand this in order to understand James. No one can see faith that one had at salvation, and it cannot be determined by one's behavior. Now, this is what the enemy is trying to sell. They're saying that you can look at someone's behavior and you can tell if they had a saving faith. Because if they don't have a, the works, if their behavior doesn't show that, that they had a saving type of faith, then they're not even saved. And what I'm telling you, in fact, I wrote a, a booklet on this, Can You Tell? No one can see the faith that you have at salvation, and it cannot be determined, one's behavior cannot determine whether you're saved or not. Some believers have exemplary behavior, while others, disgusting behavior. Some produce good works and some do not. Are we in harmony with that? We know that because we're talking about ourselves, aren't we? Sometimes we might have exemplary behavior. We might be right on the beam. And other times we're disgusting. We even disgust ourselves sometimes. Is that not true? And it has nothing whatsoever to do with our eternal salvation. That was a done deal. This is what God accomplished in total when we believed in Christ. Now, look at this next. This is but. Look how big this but is. This is one time when a big but is good. It's necessary. You all will like it. We can all celebrate a big but here. But the behavior of a believer does not determine if he's applying doctrine or not. Uh, excuse me, does. I guess I better put my glasses on. God made this big deal about a button, then I missed the key line. The, the behavior of a believer does determine if he is applying doctrine or not. It also reveals whether he is carnal or spiritual. The imaginary objector contends that this is not true, and James is demonstrating that it is true. He's going to demonstrate. You got that? This is where it all gets kind of muddled up. It kind of offends us saying that uh, the objector says, well... You cannot see faith by your works. And we are saying, what I'm saying, if you are talking about eternal salvation, 
that is true. Because there are some believers out there that are legalistic that would probably, if you looked at their life next to ours, it would make us look immoral or certainly apathetic. They don't miss a, they don't miss a trick. They're always at church. They dot every I, they cross every T, and they're going to hell because they are depending upon those works to be saved. We don't want to go around making a habit of determining who's carnal and who's spiritual. We don't want to make it a habit of going around determining who is applying doctrine and who is not. That is not our job. We are not to judge other people. But we can't help doing it, can we? I mean, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? How about people in your family? How hard is it to determine if they're in fellowship or not? Not too hard, is it? Huh? So when they're out of fellowship, do you automatically start thinking, well, I wonder if they're really saved. One person has a bad day and they're complaining and carrying on and they're just a pain in the neck. Do you automatically start thinking, you know, I thought, that, I thought he was saved. And look at, look at it. I don't know. Aren't you glad you don't have to get into that mire? One more time. We cannot tell if a believer is saved or not by their behavior because they're all over the page. And you look at the Bible throughout it. There are times when you look at David and think he is the most rebellious, detestable person you can think of. And then at other times, he lives up to the accolade that he is one after God's own heart. It just depends where you are and when it happens. But that is not true with regards to uh, believers. We can determine if they're applying doctrine or not, and that's what James is talking about. They were not applying doctrine. He never questions or doubts their eternal salvation because nothing in James is about that. Then the objector straw man tries to illustrate his point in verse 19. Are you ready to go even deeper? Now, if you think that one was hard to understand, this is the one that, if, if you can get past this one, uh, let me put it this way. I know I didn't finish that sentence, but I had another thought. If you can understand this, then you're on your way to controlling this little thing that wags in our mouth. How hard is that to do? Huh? It controls the whole ship, you know, that little rudder. Let's concentrate. Let's, we can get this. Just hang on. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Remember, this, still, this is still the objector trying to make his case. He is trying to excuse his lack of works and application of doctrine. In the whole discussion, it is not the content of faith that is the issue, but it's the lack of works key in understanding this. Because everybody starts saying, well, you, what do you mean? The believe, what, do they, what is it that the demons believe in? And, it, and they get all, nothing in this has to do with the object of faith. He's not focusing on the faith. He's focusing on the lack of works. 
He's trying to prove that works do not naturally flow from faith. In this illustration, what is believed is not important. Got that? So you hear me say all the time, what you believe is extremely important, and that's true. But in this case, in this imaginary objector, he's trying to, to make the case that the, the, the faith that he's talking about, the object of that is not the issue because he's not talking about faith. He's talking about a lack of works. The point is, belief in the same thing can produce different results. That's his point. Repeat. What the objector is claiming is that the same thing, the same faith, can produce different results. That's all he's saying here. That's what the illustration is all about. It has nothing to do with God being one. He just used that as an illustration. He could have used another illustration just as easy to prove his point. It only took me about two hours to come up with this illustration. I'll read it in less than a minute. But it's hard to come up with one, but I think this will do the trick. Here's the example of what he could have said. You believe in the Ten Commandments and strive to keep them. You do well. Unbelievers also believe in the Ten Commandments, but ignore them. Coming to the conclusion, which is false, what you believe has no bearing on what you do. That's what this is trying to illustrate. So don't get hung up on God is one or think just because it says uh, believe in here and it has God in here. See, it, you believe in God. You believe that God is one. When you hear God and you hear believe, where do people's mind default to? So, eternal salvation. It doesn't have anything to do with eternal salvation. In fact, what they believe is inconsequential. What is important that He's got two creatures, a human and a demon, both believe in the same thing. They have faith in the same thing, and the whole point that James is getting across is that it produced different results. Therefore, they can't be connected. That doesn't matter. I've never heard this verse quoted with the right interpretation, and I've heard it quoted many times. Usually, it is... Only the last six words that are quoted, the demons also believe and shudder. These six words are usually quoted by an unbeliever who is trying to argue that works must accompany faith in Christ or else one cannot be eternally saved. That's what they're trying to, to get from this. And our job when we're talking to someone like that is to help them understand that this has nothing whatsoever to do with eternal salvation. We have some believers here that James is, is coming on their behalf as a straw man, pleading their case. And the case is that you can have two entities believing in the same thing and having different results. Therefore, they come to the false, false that you believe. The illustration of the deem are compared. These people will take the verse. They'll try to prove it kind of faith. And what are they talking about? It has anything to do with salvation. The first thing is you're lost. You're done for. Wait, I'm getting saved. You leave little red and go to Tomorrow's house. 
Well, the demons also believe the little idols have. But only in you, it doesn't make them passionate. And he could be saying, he'd be saying something. The illustration shows a person that demons believing is a one God and they are That's their both agree on. That's what Balsistic, he's not polythene. Monotheism, truth, this, but no one has ever received eternal life by believing that there's one God. That one believe and you think, and, and that's not the gospel. It was very different. This is Lutheran faith, Bible doctrine, Donald Hank. Am I going to have a question? You mean is is not necessarily set with faith, and that's all fine. The people to and what James is saying, you better, because there is a connection between your faith, the doctrine you have in your soul, you're in big time trouble. This is what James is saying. Are you being experientially, experientially sanctified? Are you growing to spiritual maturity? Are you, look for, are you looking forward to the a Nike Awards sim, uh, uh, the Nike Awards ceremony at the judgment seat of Christ? You know what Nike means? It's the Greek word that means victorious. Tennis shoe company picked it up. Nike shoes, victorious. Wouldn't it be neat if everybody at the Nike Awards were wearing Nikes? <laughs> Golden Nikes? <clears throat> what the imaginary objector is insinuating is not true. There is a connection between faith and works. However, to say that there is a connection between faith and works concerning eternal salvation is not true. That's the distinction you have to understand and you have to make clear to other people. Because when you're saved, it is a done deal. You can go into the Greek and look at the perfect tense. You can even see that in the English. It's what God does at salvation that is permanent. And it's done. We call it positional. Positional justification. And a lot of believers say, that's it. Do you know why a lot of people, are believers, are so bored? Because they think, that's all there is. I've been saved now. What is there? I guess I'll go watch Oprah. Oh, well, I can't watch Oprah anymore. She's gone. I'll watch some other kind of nonsense. Instead of recognizing what's at stake, all eternity, rewards, decorations, crowns, privileges, for all eternity, and we can do something about it now. God expects us to do it now. He commands us to do it now. And if we don't do it, then what we can expect is the divine tap. This message is not getting out to believers. James has given it, though. Again, what the objector insinuates is not true. There is a connection between faith and works experientially, but not salvifically. His argument is that both demons and men believe the same thing, monotheism, both believe that there is only one God, which of course is true, but their faith does not produce the same response. Although the faith in monotheism by a man may move him to do well, produce good works, it never moves demons to do well, produce good works. 
Their actions are evil and contrary to God, so they shudder because they know that they are under the condemnation of God. Please give me some kind of notation if any of this is getting through. Go like this if you're getting it. Thank you. Yes. Well, I have a hand in the back. Yes, dear. It could have been a billy goat. It doesn't... The demons... I think one reason he said demons is because he's trying to show that this is universal. Not only for humankind and all humankind, it goes the same with angels as well. And, and this is where a lot of people get off. When he, however, when he did choose to bring demons into it, a lot of people get thrown off. But the only point I say over and over, it's not, it's not what they believe in. It's really not even who it is that is doing the believing. The only point that he's trying to make is that when you have two people, or you have an angel and you have a human, or if you have a dog and a cat, it doesn't matter what it is, if they both believe and trust in the same thing, and it has differing results, it proves our case that faith and works are not connected in the experiential realm. That's what they're saying. And James is saying, oh, you want to bet? Yes. Just a second. Let's make it harder. Here. <laughs> yeah, real close, real close. Without uh, the works, I mean, without uh, doctrine and knowing doctrine, how are you going to apply? So he's talking about. I see your point. I see your point. Okay. Oh, good. Yeah, and it's a good point. I'm glad you brought it up. Do you all understand what she's saying? <laughs> you might have known. Everybody in the room is nodding like that, and the husband says, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Here's the thing. You cannot apply what you don't know. So these belie- they were trained by James. You know, he had, he had been with them and trained them. And that's one reason he is really letting them have it, because they know better. And they were not applying what they knew and he's saying, you're in big time trouble. This is not going to pass. And they're going to say, yeah, but there's no connection here. Oh, yes. And he's going to, we haven't got to the part where he's going to nail it. But he's going to say, yes, there is a big time connection here. Now, let me ask you a question. What if they didn't know doctrine to apply? Would they be off the hook? Absolutely not. They're not off the hook. And, and m- this is where most people are stymied. I think most believers are shipwrecked when it comes to the, to the point of learning doctrine. They haven't even gotten to the application part. You can't apply what you don't know. So this part of James not only applies to doctrinal believers 
who have doctrine and aren't applying it. It applies to every believer. If they don't have doctrine, they can't apply it, and they're still in the same boat. But in this case, Barbara, you're right. These would be believers that are so proud of the reams of notes they have in their home. They've been taking notes for 20 years. Would you like to come into my closet? I'll show you all these notes that I have. Well, that's right. That, that's, that's great. Well, can, can you give me a ride home? No, I don't have time. Go and be blessed. You see what I'm talking about? That's what was going on. Nothing to do with their salvation whatsoever. Good question, Barbara. Um, so it never moves uh, the demons to do well. Their actions are evil, contrary, and so they shudder. This shuddering part is, oh, man, I wish, you know, I could go for three hours straight and not slow down on this. You believe that? Okay. But I think that the capacity in the mind is, uh, is uh, somehow connected and quantified by the pain in the bottom somehow. So we only can take so much, I understand. I talk to Carrie all the time. I, I mean, I'm, I'm excited, I'm enthused, and I'm telling her about this. Uh, we've, how, long, how much have we talked about James? We talk about James on the way home, when we get home, on the way back here and everything. And sometimes she says, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> My mind is saturated. Don't tell me anything else. And I'm over here and I'm still ginning. Okay, well, you know, right here, Matthew, first of all, let's look at they know that they're under condemnation and it causes them to shudder, to tremble. Matthew 8:29 and Mark 1:24 has to do with the person at the Gadarenes that had a demon and when Christ was going to excise that demon and going to cast him out, they said, are you here before the time, before the day? In other words, they know that it's coming. And they shudder because of it. They know who Christ is. They know that God is one. But because they are eternally condemned already, just waiting for the human drama to play out, they shudder. I only have time for these. See these little verses right here? Three verses. This is neat, though. And this is all I have time left to do. I'm just getting cranked up, but... We'll, we can at least, we have enough time to do this, and I'll do it quickly. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. I want to show you something. Some of you will recognize this. And by the time we get to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, you'll know why I'm going to these three verses. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels, and by the way, these are fallen angels, when they sinned, and the sin that they did was procreate with women, down in Genesis 6, they went outside the bounds of God's rules of engagement, but cast them into hell. Now, every one of you should have hell circled or something and have written in there Tartarus. T-A-R-T-A-R-U-S. It is a place. It is a compartment of Hades called Tartarus. I wish, you know, they, they transliterate things all the time when they don't need to, and when they really need to here, 
They just translated hell. And it's not hell. It's Tartarus. It is a specific location in Hades or hell. And committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Okay, so the angels that went outside of God's boundary and had sex with women in Genesis 6, which was possible then, and you had the Nephilim, which were the offspring and so forth, God is punishing them. They were thrown in a place called Tartarus in darkness. They don't know what's going on, and they're waiting for judgment. Now, turn to Jude 6. Jude's the last book before Revelation. I would say chapter 1, but there's no chapter. Jude chapter 6. I didn't have, I don't have, oh. I don't have a verse, so I got. give me a second to find the verse. Six, there it is, okay, thank you. Uh, and angels who did not keep their own domain, this is the same people, these are the fallen angels that were cast into Tartarus, but abandoned their proper abode, they got out of the realm of the angelic and got into the human realm, he has kept in eternal bonds under the darkness for judgment of the great day. What is the great day? Well, I don't want to get off on that. I have to explain it. I, should, I wish I hadn't asked it. We'll just press on. We're not out of time. We've got to go one more. Go to First Peter now, verse 3. Excuse me, chapter 3. First Peter, chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 19. Let's start with verse 18, just to put it in context. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all. Underline that. That's in Hebrews chapter 10 also. You don't have to keep offering up on an altar every Sunday at Mass the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now verse 19. In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. And right to the side of that, or somewhere, Second Peter 2.4. So what did he do? Christ made a little trip down to Tartarus, and he made a proclamation. The proclamation was not giving them the gospel. They had been in darkness all this time. So he went to inform them in his resurrection body that their little scheme was foiled. He had gone to the cross. He had won the strategic victory over their, the one they worshipped, which is Satan. And he went down there to, to inform them, and guess what you can suppose that they did? Tremble. Right? That's why they tremble. is because they know who Jesus Christ is. 
they know that God is one. They know that they have already been sentenced to the lake of fire, and every day it gets closer. And these who have, were in Tartarus, who were hoping beyond hope that Satan was going to be victorious, Christ went down, and when they saw him in his, in his resurrection body, he didn't have to say anything. They recognized who he was and what had happened. But the proclamation was that God is faithful. God is true. And the sentence will be carried out. I just, I just thought I'd bring that along to show you that when it says uh, the demons tremble, that's why they tremble. It's not because they don't do good works as what some would have you believe. I wish, I wish that I could get... What, what follows will help you understand everything that we had before. So you're going to have to hang on to what you have now so that when we come back next time, which won't be until next Thursday... Can you all hold on till Thursday? Because we're, we're, we're going to build on what I just gave you. I'm sure I'll have to review some. But I, you're going to go away if you hang in here thinking, boy, that James is a great book. I'm so glad he wrote chapter 2. You might not be there yet, but you can be there. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time you've given us to focus on these things that so many people throw up their hands and they say there's no way. But the Holy Spirit inspired James to write this so that we can understand, that we can put our priorities in the proper perspective, that we can be confident when we, when we talk to those who are in spiritual darkness. We pray that you will help us to meditate and think about these things so that we will be prepared. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.